Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. It's a high-stress job that pays nothing and can exact a high price both emotionally and physically. The work of a frontline caregiver is a labor of love, but it also amounts to an estimated $600 million in unpaid work each year. I'm joined now by Linda Lanier, CEO of ElderSource, uh, to talk about a federal tax credit that could offer some relief. That's right. Thanks for being here, Linda. Appreciate you being here. Uh, for our listeners, we may have a slightly sh- shorter show today because we're going to be joining NPR's live coverage of oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court on whether former President Trump is disqualified from running for office. So just be aware that we will turn to that when that comes to us live. Uh, but first, Linda, there are a lot of reasons that people step into the role of primary caregiver. Um, what are some of them? What are some of the reasons that people shoulder that burden? Well, mostly love for their parent, uh, for their um, sibling, for their spouse. It's a natural role that people take on that they don't really identify necessarily as caregiver. They may identify as wife or husband or daughter or son, uh, but often it's financial. Uh, Their loved one is getting older and frailer and needs some additional support. And so they will step in and and help with that. And so this can be something that is a result of aging, but it can also be the result of an illness or an accident or some sort of, um, you know, birth issue, like a, you know, a defect or something that you're born with that makes it hard for you to function in, in ways that you need assistance. Oh, absolutely. It's not just about aging. Of course, we think of older adults needing caregivers, but people living with disabilities or like you said, even a, an accident, they suddenly need someone to care for them and support them. And so, um, this is often because people want to be able to keep their loved one in a place where they're comfortable rather than putting them in some place maybe that they would be cared for elsewhere or very often they can't afford that kind of care. Right. I mean, I haven't met anybody yet who wants to go into a nursing home or a long-term care facility. They want to be cared for at home. They're comfortable in their home. They know their home. And uh, that's where they want to stay and stay as independent as possible. So caregivers uh, make that possible. Right. And they do everything from assisting with administering medication. Um, they do bill paying. They do doctor's appointments, you know, taking people back and forth. There's really a lot of responsibilities that you can accrue as a primary caregiver. There is a lot and it varies. It depends on the person's needs and the caregiver's ability to help. And this is where people don't necessarily identify themselves as caregivers. When they want to need to take someone to an appointment, they're being a caregiver. When they're helping to pay bills, they're being a caregiver. They're supporting somebody. They may be preparing meals. They may be making home modifications. They may be paying for some support to come into the home and help somebody. And so there is, in addition to the time, there is real out-of-pocket costs that come with that. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's medications, as you mentioned. Sometimes they have to pay for the medications. They may have to purchase consumable medical supplies, which are very expensive and may not be covered by insurance. They may have to make home modifications, like install grab bars and pay for those types of things, or even pay for supportive services like respite care to come into the home. So we're talking about the cost and stresses of being a caregiver. Are you providing essential care for a loved one? What kind of help do you need? We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. And reach out on social media if you are on Facebook or Instagram. You can also tag us on X at FCC on air. Linda, the frontline caregivers are, I mean, they're 
not taking on this role and also not working full time or not working part time. It's not as if having those responsibilities somehow liberates you from all of the other things that you have to do, including earning a living. Absolutely. So many caregivers are what we call sandwich generation, where they are taking care of their parent and also their children. They don't stop being parents themselves, and they're in that situation. They are also working. They're in the workforce. Uh, I'm a caregiver to a degree. We have people who work for me who are caregivers, whether it's for a child or a parent or a grandparent. Um, you, life doesn't stop, and uh, it can be costly, and it is hard to juggle. So let's talk about um, this possibility of some federal assistance for people who are in this role. Um, is there anything currently available? There are supportive services available for uh, caregivers. There are several federal programs and state-funded programs that, in fact, we manage that we get from the Administration for Community Living and the Department of Elder Affairs. You, you at ElderSource. Yes. Uh-huh. And we fund programs and services in the community that help older adults and their caregivers stay at home and stay independent as much as possible and delay and even prevent having to go into a long-term care facility. So there are services available. Um, there's not, uh, there is one program that we manage that does provide a subsidy, but that you have to be low income and you have to be a 24 hour caregiver. So there's not another program that I'm familiar with that provides any type of other financial support to caregivers. And in this case, working caregivers who need to stay in the workforce. Right. So, so this federal legislation, um, there is some federal legislation pending being discussed, um, tell me a little bit about what that would do and where it is in the process. So it is the Credit for Caring Act. It is bipartisan, which is nice because aging should not be a partisan issue. It is a bipartisan issue. Being a caregiver is bipartisan. Uh, everyone is experiencing it. It has taken some time for this bill to get to this point. It is being introduced I don't believe it's been shared out fully yet to the full um, Congress. So there is still a road ahead, but um, this is the farthest this bill is has come, is my understanding, and it will provide a tax credit for working caregivers up to, I think it's about $7,000 after, it's $5,000 after the first 2000 that they may put out. Explain that a little bit more. Five thousand beyond, like if you've spent two thousand. Mm-hmm. If you spent the two thousand, then you would get up to five thousand dollars in tax credit for verifiable expenses. And what constitutes a verifiable expense? I mean, I could see if you're asking for reimbursement for medications that you've purchased, but in terms of uh, time spent, is that something that's quantifiable? Is that something that the bill addresses? I'm not sure. I haven't seen the full bill. Um, I know that there are expenses that the caregiver does incur, like you said, medications. It could be supplies, purchases, um, every things that they can certainly verify and report in order to get a tax credit. I'm not sure how the time spent would help uh, be recorded and tracked, but uh, that's to be seen. And so um, what are there some numbers on what people are typically spending when they're in this role, kind of how much it costs? Well, the number I've seen on average is a little over $7,000 annually. 
I believe in many cases it could be significantly more than that, depending on the need of the person they're caring for. But it can also be, you know, just medications that they need, the loved one needs help paying for, or like I said, those supplies or installation of devices, which are lower cost. Uh, So it does vary, but I understand that's around the average. So how important do you think this this would be in terms of helping people um, who are in the role of caregiver? Is this something that would be significant for them? Oh, I think so. You know, when you have to um, incur these costs, it puts a burden on those families to do their duty as a caregiver, and it can affect them at work as well. And if they're leaving work, the workforce to become a caregiver or they're reducing their hours for, so that they can provide caregiver, they're having that financial impact. So any financial assistance and support that these folks could get definitely will have an impact. So what do you hear about need in the community? I mean, in the role that you serve, what what stories do you hear from people about what circumstances they're facing financially or otherwise? So we do hear um, caregivers having to leave the workforce or change their work hours, go part-time so that they could provide more caregiving. There's not enough support in the community for the number of people that are aging and the number of people that are becoming caregivers. This is going to become a growing problem. So more support that we could give caregivers to stay as caregivers, providing services to them, like the ones we fund, and providing them financial income so that they could stay in place and continue the caregiving. We're seeing more demand on caregivers and more caregivers out there who need us. I mean, it does seem, you know, when you get to an age uh, where you have, you know, parents or, or in-laws or whatever that are maybe, you know, at a stage that they are considering what to do next. Um, and obviously a home setting is really the best, I think, for people's psychological state and their emotional well-being. But the cost of putting uh, someone in a place to live is really just seems almost prohibitively expensive for anyone. Oh, long-term care is very expensive. Um, it could be $90,000 annually or more, and you're going to spend down very quickly. You'll end up on um, federal benefits to try, to try to support that care in the facility. So it's very expensive both to the family but also to the government to pay for that kind of care. It's definitely better and healthier to keep people at home as long as possible, and to save those resources as much as possible to provide the care in the home. It's better for everybody. So this bill is a very important bill to, to in the process of helping folks. It is, it is a one thing that could help. Um, is it surprising to you? <clears throat> Was it surprising to you when you kind of got into this particular line of work, um, how you know few resources there are or what need there is for end of life or older, elder services um, for people and and for families taking care of them. Yeah, so I started uh, working for area agencies on aging um, over 30 years ago now. Can't believe it. And I've been here now for 20 years. And we knew this was coming. We knew people were aging, boomers were aging, and there would be this increase in need. Um, I think we were hoping there would be more available uh, to help. Um, And there's always going to be more. There definitely is going to be more in the near future for these services and for funding for these programs that support them. The government needs to 
support these caregivers because they can't afford to not. And when you say there's going to be more of a need, I mean, some anecdotally, it seems like I hear more about, you know, dementia in 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 older, but not necessarily old adults. Um, is that actually becoming more of a problem Uh or are you just sort of talking about, you know, boomers aging and that's where that growth would be coming from? It's coming from a variety of places, right? So the longer you live, the greater chance you have of getting dementia. People are definitely living longer, right? I remember when they used to announce on the weather channel or the weather news, you know, about, oh, we have a centenarian. They've stopped making those announcements right. because there's Everybody, so many living right. to 100 now. So you just have more people aging and living longer, and you have this boom of people aging. So you have both things happening where more people are aging and the people who are aging are living that much longer. And so need more need, have more need, becoming more frail necessarily at the, near the end of life and need that support. So what um, would you advise people if they're if they support this measure? Is there something that they can do to get involved uh, in and advocate for this tax credit, this proposed tax credit? Absolutely. If people like this bill and want to see it pass, it's always good to make those calls to your legislators, to your members of Congress. Let them know that you support this bill. And if you're a caregiver, share your story. Let them know how this will help you. Call them, write them, email them. There's so many ways that you could reach out and advocate. And in terms of the resources that Elder Source provides that do exist, how can people access those? Well, there's two ways. They can go to our website, which is myeldersource.org. There is um, a, there are phone numbers there. There's actually resources on the website itself targeted to caregivers, as well as just older adults in general and people with disabilities. There is a chat feature on that website as well if they just want to chat with somebody. And they can call our toll-free number, which is 1-888-242-4464. Well, Linda and Lanier, thank you so much for being here and telling us about this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Up next, how a fearless ship captain became a central figure in Jacksonville's civil rights movement. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Chris Boyven and Jerry Urso, two folks that are going to tell us about an upcoming event at the Jacksonville Library. Um, it actually has to do with a really uh, undertold story of a ship captain um, who was active during the lead up to the Spanish Civil War. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. He um, 
he's probably one of the most dynamic people I've ever written an essay about. He was just a master of everything that he ever tried to do. Um, so Captain Floyd, so I'll, I'll tell you a story how I came across Captain Floyd. So Masha Dean Phelps was writing a book about Solly Mitchell's first hundred years. So I was working with Masha Dean on a portion of the uh, one of the chapters she was writing. So and, we, and Marsha Dean Phelps is a local historian who does yes. a lot on black history. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. So we were going through looking for Solly Mitchell's great grandfather, which was Dr. D.W. Gillisley, who was also important during the civil rights movement. Um, so we were trying to find his grave. And so we're going through the cemetery. I come across a tombstone that says wife of Captain Floyd. And that's all it said. And my interest just peaked. I'm like, <laughs> who's Captain Floyd? Um, and and it, there was nothing anywhere. Um, so, you know, I started digging and digging and digging. And then I come across that there was a um, former slave who, and when the United States uh, troop, the college troops came to Jacksonville, was freed and he ended up becoming a harbor pilot. And so he was from New Berlin pilot town, which a lot of people don't know. A lot of the harbor pilots in the state of Florida were actually African-Americans um, all the way down to Key West with the Welter brothers. They were also harbor pilots. They knew the terrain and especially the inlets of the St. John's river and St. Mary's river. So they were um, put in these positions of being captains of these harbor pilots. So his father ends up running a steamer. Um, so before a lot of the train tracks were here, right, there was like one leading to Jacksonville um, during the Civil War. So how did you get materials up and down St. John's River by, you know, ferries and steamers? So his dad ends up becoming a captain of a ferry and he's bringing goods and services up along the St. John's River. So, you know, I could just imagine Captain Floyd sitting on his father's lap while he's running these steamers and they're bringing, you know, cargo up and down. So he was inspired. So Captain Floyd, Father John Floyd, you know, was a great inspiration to him. But his So his son becomes a harbor pilot. And then he, um, during the Spanish-American War, um, he, he gets on a boat called the Dauntless, which was first captained by Captain John dynamite johnny o'brien right? let's get a little context for where we are i don't want to break sure. the flow but we're talking about the late 1800s right correct and this uh man from jacksonville was running these ships these ships were going to cuba specifically to arm insurgents there is correct. that right so talk a little bit about um how perilous that was and what the, the job entailed for him in terms of you know getting those munitions here and bringing them down to people who were fighting for independence in Cuba. So there was a lot of um, support for the um, Cuban independence in Florida because there was a lot of Cuban-Americans living here. And um, even Horatio Bisbee actually put up some of the money to buy the Dauntless. Um, there was actually a store pretty much right by where the um, uh, Hyatt Regency is. And there was a Cuban um, grocer who used his grocery store as um, a place to bring in, bring the munitions in and then take them off. So Captain Floyd actually lived on Bay Street right on the St. John's River. So, and Captain O'Brien only did two, I believe he only did two trips to Cuba, right? He was the captain of the Dauntless. He was the first captain of Dauntless, but whenever they had perilous, wa- um, go through perilous weather or they came across the harbor patrols, they would put Cap, um, he was the pilot at the time, Captain Floyd, at the helm. So 
And and why would why would he swap out? Why would the white captain swap out with Captain Floyd? It was a real it was a compliment. It was a backhanded compliment. But one of the quotes that Captain O'Brien said was that Captain Floyd was cunning. He was um, intelligent and a great um, a great pilot. Um, and the only thing um, the only thing about him that wasn't white was his skin. Right. So that was like this backwood compliment that he was trying to give him just basically saying that he was you know his because of his intelligence he related it to whiteness right and, and we should say you're you're a historian Correct. for a local masonic lodge yes and um, a jacksonville historian yeah and a jacksonville historian i, I want to just ask you a little bit about the history of the you know kind of black masonic lodges and white masonic lodges there was a split for a long long time it racially enforced yeah there was a couple um court cases um there was the um ancient egyptian arabic orders noble mystic shrine where the white shriners took um the egyptian shriners to court for the right to use the fez and the you know regalia the things that make them nobles and the masonic and was i think it's 1898 there's actually legislation that in order to be a Mason in the state of Florida, you had to be white. So they were actually violating the law by even existing. Um, there was a couple court cases on 410 Broad Street. There used to be, when they first built that building, on the top of the building was a Masonic logo, and they had to take it down during the court case. This is that extraordinary uh, Henry Clutho building? Yes. At the corner of, what is it? Uh, 410 Broad Street. Broad, Broad and... Church and Ashley. Yeah. Is that right? Okay, yeah. Uh, Right near the courthouse, but mm -hmm. it's still a beautiful building. And is that still occupied by the lodge? Yes, it is. Okay. That building has more black history than any building in the state of Florida. There was probably 1,000 members of this organization that were just as significant as Captain Floyd, James Weldon Johnson, um, the first um, African-American to represent Florida United States Congress. Um, you had, you know, the first black doctors. They all belong to that organization. And you can tie more black history to that building at any place in the state of Florida. And you are uh, the historian for that lodge. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So, um, Chris, I want to ask you, this is part of the library's black history month observances. Um, why are we uh, telling this particular man's story? It's a, it was a new story to me. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to tell stories like this. And you're right. It, these are new stories. And even Jerry and I were talking like, you're not going to uh, come into the library, open up a book and find these stories there. So we really love the opportunity to share stories like this that are unknown that are untold with um with the public and um you know it's also fortunate because right now we just received a one million the library just received a million dollar grant from the Mellon Foundation to enhance its African American history collection. So stories like this, and there will be also related documents that um, that Jerry will be donating. That he's talking about donating to the library. Not only will this help enhance Jacksonville's African American history knowledge, but it's going to be put into. We're working on putting into a digital public archive, so the whole country, the whole world, can can finally hear some of these great stories. So we look for these opportunities that really make history come alive, and and we're very fortunate to have Jerry to tell these. So we're talking about the story of a Captain James Floyd from Jacksonville. Uh, he was a black pilot with a master's license, and he was helping support the insurgent uh, independence effort in Cuba back in the late 1800s. If you have a question, you can sure give us a call at 904-549-2937. Uh, you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org or reach out on social media. Jerry, this is interesting 
a piece of history because it really did grow out of your own personal curiosity. Like you said, you were sort of saw this unusual uh, engraving on a yes. headstone and it just sort of, you followed your, the trail. Can I tell you a funny story about Captain Floyd? So when he becomes the um, captain of the Dauntless, he makes several trips. As a matter of fact, when he passed away, the Cuban government paid for his tombstone. It is a beautiful piece of marble. It's probably 10 feet by four feet. At the um, same cemetery? It's at Evergreen Cemetery. Okay. Um, he was given full military honors by the Cuban government. They had uh, consulates from Cuba come up here. He was given all kinds of medals. They wrote folk songs about him and Captain O'Brien. So they were out running the Harbor Patrol, and there was a dense fog on the St. John's River. So the Harbor Patrol fired a couple of shots across the bow to get the Dauntless to stop. So in the fog, Captain Floyd loses them, pulls up to his house on Bay Street, they unload a 50-pound cannon and all the munitions, dump, bring it to his house, jumps back on the boat, catches up to the harbor patrol and says, where you guys been? I've been looking for you. Uh, <laughs> and in another instance, they were coming back from Cuba and they only had one box of munitions left on the Dauntless. So they, again, they fired some, um, um, some shots across the bow, get the Dauntless to stop. So... James Floyd, seeing that there's this one box of munitions, decides to stand on top of the box when they board. So they come, and the customs house inspects the whole boat. They can't find any munitions. So then the captain of the patrol boat goes to Captain Floyd. He goes, what's in that box you're standing on? And Captain Floyd replies, your men look really hungry, and this is the last box of sardines we have that we brought back from Cuba. Would you like them? <laughs> and, and they looked at Captain Floyd and said, no, no, thank you, and left the boat. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this was the lead up to the Spanish and American War. This was when Cuba was fighting for its right. independence from Spain. And you talk about the harbor pilot uh, trying to stop these boats from going back and forth with arms to Cuba, which is weird because, I mean, eventually the U.S. was at that point sort of in the background supporting Cuban independence. It was um, wink, wink even though uh, President Cleveland had issued an executive order basically stating that America would be neutral. Um, so I think it was the neutrality clause or something of that nature at that time. And not get between Cuba's effort and Spain. Correct. Um, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of animosity with America and Spain anyway here in Florida. You know, the whole Amistad story that, that with Queen Isabella that lasted a long time. Um, so, you know, there was this neutrality. Um, but, you know, you look at a lot of the uh, Cuban-Americans that are living in Florida, they're going to support you know, Cuban independence. So it was, it was a difficult um, time, you know, like here in Jacksonville, there was the people that are pro Spain and the people that are pro Cuba. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was um, a lot of it was wink, wink and swept under the rug. And yeah, we know you're doing this, but just don't get caught. So the Harbor pilots were sort of tasked with uh, yes. stopping boats like the Dauntless, right. but perhaps their sympathies were with people like Captain Floyd, who was trying to arm these insurgents in, in Cuba. I mean, there was a great support in the African-American community for Cuban independence and a lot of um, W.E.B. Du Bois's writings. So it was actually Du Bois, um, when I finally found the article in the Crisis magazine, that gave, a lot, that gave me a lot more insight and information to keep on digging the story of Captain Floyd. When I found a letter from Du Bois's to Captain Floyd's wife, you know, looking for a picture of him. So when he passed, there was a nice article that Du Bois had wrote. 
Okay. Crisis Magazine is the NAACP publication. Yes, ma'am. Um, and so that kind of history is something that you're going to be getting into when you do this presentation at the mm -hmm. library. I just want to read a little note we got from Nancy in Atlantic Beach. She says she was driving to work and listening to Jerry and says he is a great storyteller and she's mesmerized by the story. So um, clearly a lot of interest in that. So when is the event and how can people find out more, Chris? Yeah, the event is uh, this Friday, this Saturday, um, February 10th at 2.30 at the main library. It's going to be in the special collections department, which if uh, you haven't had a chance to visit it, it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, so it's 2.30. Um, people can uh, pre-register online if they like. They can go to the library's website, jackspubliclibrary.org, um, look for the History Chat um, uh, logo, and they will find how to register. And yeah, we'd love everybody to come. It's a free event for everybody uh, with a library card. Well, great history, Jerry. Thank you so much. Chris, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Uh, up next, a new 50 and older clinic hopes to fill a medical gap in Jacksonville. A new primary care clinic opened its doors in Arlington in just a couple well, days ago, I think it was. Uh, it's called Sanitas Medical Center, and I'm joined now by family medicine practitioner, Dr. Luxley Jean. Uh, welcome for being here. This is a 50 and older clinic. Yes, that's correct. I explain what is the need for a 50 and older clinic? Why did you decide that that should be the focus of this center? Well, um, as you know, the number of uh, Medicaid adults uh, is growing. That's uh, in, uh, all over the state, including Jacksonville. There are actually 4.9 million um, older adults, um, which is Medicaid eligible. Um, and by 2030, there will be, um, there, that will make up 21% of the adult population. And by 2060, that number is going to be double from 46 a million to 98 million. So what percent of the of the population? 4.9 million uh, uh, Medicare eligible. Uh, yes. I, I thought you said there was a percentage that it was of the population. Maybe I missed oh, it. 21, 21. 21, okay. Percent, yes. So a significant segment of the population. What kind of special needs do people that are older than 50 have? Or what changes when okay. someone turns 50? Uh, as we get older, our body changes. We become more vulnerable to, to disease. So... As a uh, 50 plus uh, clinic, what we do when we start early for prevention. So we start early, we get to know our patient. We can tailor care directly for this individual. That's what changes. So um, I've heard that, you know, it's been that the, the number of people that are focusing on elder physical services as doctors has diminished somewhat, that it's maybe harder for people to um, find a primary care doctor that addresses specifically the needs of aging people. Is that a, is that a problem? Yes, it is a problem. Um, there is a, um, not shortage of, of, of doctors. I think um, 
there's a lot of uh, I mean because of shortage there's a lot of uh, patients that stay out don't get the care they needed um, it, it is a big problem and so why did you choose the Arlington area for this particular 50 and older facility well Florida blue is our uh, has been in Jacksonville for the last uh, 80 years this is our headquarters this is our city we know the city we know the needs we work with local uh, government and organization that help us um, that, that help us find a place which um, our members can get find access easily to come to us. Yeah, and so is there, um, is it just because it's centrally located or is there a particular need in the Arlington area that this is meant to service? Well, it is one, well because it's uh, centrally located, but in the future we are um, looking also to expand our clinic. So we're probably going to offer services in different areas. Okay, and so what sort of response have you gotten? You did just open, was it just last week? Uh, yes, so, uh, we'll, we opened January 2nd. Okay. And so what sort of reception have you gotten? What kind of response have you heard from the community? So far, so good. Um, well, we uh, the patient that we've seen, they're giving us feedback and they're enjoying the center. Uh, they love the center. Uh, the services we offer, um, we probably are among the very few that offer those services that we offer. Do you plan to open additional facilities, additional offices that would serve a 50 and older community? Yes. That's our plan. We plan to expand. Um, we currently have about fifty clinics in the across the state of uh, um, across the state, and we plan to open about eight more this year. And there's more coming up in um, twenty twenty five. Um, any particular locations that you're going to be looking at in the northeast Florida first coast region? Uh, we do not have any particular location now. Uh, we have the research. We're looking at different places where we're going to expand. But you believe that there. That need exists. Yes. So how can people um, connect with the clinic? It, it, is it, do you have to be a Florida blue patient in order to go? And, and how can people get more information? This uh, is a, uh, exclusively to Florida blue members and of 50 and over and Florida blue Medicare um, patient of all ages. Um, well, there's, I could give them the number to the clinic if they want uh, to connect with us. And it's, it's Sanitas. What does that mean? What is the meaning behind the name? Sanitas. Um, from the Latin word sanitas, which means health. Um, but it's more than just the name. It's a brain, what we do for our patient, how we connect with our patient. That's what it means. And so have you personally had, you know, stories to tell patients that you've dealt with um, in your role as a physician that have, you know, has made it clear to you of the need for people to receive, you know, specialized health care when they get older? Um, no, not at the moment. No. Okay. And are you uh, personally involved in that clinic? Are you that a facility I that you're at? I am personally involved in that clinic. I am the medical director of the clinic. So I've seen uh, the everyday operation of the clinic. Uh-huh. Yes. And do you, you're still seeing patients though? Yes, definitely. And so w what what do you hear from them about um, the need for, for this kind of care? No, they enjoy. Um, they enjoy the need for that care. Uh, for that, uh, care. We offer more than uh, just the primary care. We have, um, for example, we have on-site dispensing medication. We have, we do our lab. We have imaging. We have um, ultrasound, X-ray. We have mental health. We have uh, pain support for patients who have pain. We have a massage therapist that, that does that. We also offer services like um, yoga, Zumba, um, all of this into one center. Well, Dr. Luxley Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're going to switch over now to NPR's live coverage of Supreme Court oral arguments in the formal in former President Trump's ballot eligibility case. 
Uh, we won't be able to get to this week's list of cultural events, but we will post our conversation with Yaya Cordona of Create Jacks later today on the First Coast Connect Instagram page. Join us again Friday when we talk about the week's biggest headlines with our First Coast Week in Review panel. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. Vickers Landing offers elegant retirement living in the heart of Ponte Vedra Beach. Our sawgrass and oak bridge campuses feature amenities galore, resort lifestyle, comprehensive security, and plans for every stage of aging. Retirement redefined. VickersLanding.com. North Florida TPO, proud sponsor of WJCT's First Coast Connect, bringing to the community innovation in transportation planning, commuter services, clean fuels, and intelligent transportation systems. More at NorthFloridaTPO.com. Baptist Health is a proud supporter of First Coast Connect. Baptist Health, committed to building a healthier community for all of us. More info at 202-4YOU or BaptistJacks.com. This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville.